0: Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Edgy talk.
1: plain talk. Unrivaled talk. Mike
2: Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic
3: of Mike Graham.
4: On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and
3: talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on talk TV. Breaking news, the least surprising thing you've ever heard. Racist, misogynistic, homophobic, the damning verdict on the Metropolitan Police. That's what it says on the front page of The Guardian, ladies and gentlemen. um, I would imagine, and if I really, really, really could be bothered to look, you'd probably find that headline would be written about 100 million times before. How many times have we seen it? How many times have the police said they're sorry? How many times have the police said, oh, we're going to fix it? Uh, The culture's somehow gone a bit wrong. I don't understand how you can be a police officer in which uh, you do a job where you're basically trained to find out who did what, when they did it, and whether it was against the law, that you work inside an organisation that is so riddled with absolute and utter um, defeat, um, misogyny, nastiness, brutality, and yet you didn't seem to notice it. Is it any wonder that the police didn't actually solve any crimes? Is it any wonder that the rate of burglary detection uh, is in single figures? I think it's less than 6%. Is it any wonder uh, that they convict 2% of all people uh, who are accused of rape? Is it any wonder that basically the entire justice system in this country is falling down around its ears? We've got a report here from Baroness Casey, Louise Casey, a woman who sits in the House of Lords. Uh, it's said to be very thorough. There are some terrible examples of things in it. Three hundred pages of it right absolutely damning of the metropolitan police but it was commissioned in the wake of the wayne cousins case this is a man uh, who worked in a special section a diplomatic section of the police uh, where he had a mate called bastard dave uh, whose name was actually dave uh, chapwick or something like that this guy apparently killed and was sentenced to um, a prison sentence for murder K- kidnapped a woman put her into his car drove her down to kent raped her, set fire to her and then buried her. This was a man who was a serving police officer, absolutely extraordinary case. In the wake of that, they did this report. Before that, Sir Mark Rowley was in charge of this guy. He was in charge of the unit that he worked in. He didn't know what was going on. Somehow that escaped his notice. So what are the police actually doing? What are they up to? And when are they gonna fix what is wrong? I say this, the only way to fix it is to tear it down and start all over again, break it up, into Dixon of Doc Green style little community police things. How about this for a revolutionary idea? Have a police station in the community instead of shutting them all down. And then you can have the other bigger parts of it, the anti-terror squad, the armed police, all of that. But it needs to change. And let's face it, maybe even call it something different. Call it, you know, London Police Department or something. It just doesn't work as a veteran police anymore. We're going to be talking to uh, Stuart Jackson, who himself uh, is in the House of Lords now, of course. Uh, We'll be talking to him not just about the police, but also about Boris Johnson. He appears before the Privileges Committee tomorrow. Uh, I said yesterday I think it's a total waste of time. I also want to talk to him uh, about the migrant hotel problem because Rwanda, obviously, has been very much in the news this week. Um, We now learn that in the past five months, the number of hotels being commandeered by the government to house illegal migrants has doubled from 200 to 400. Tremendous. Also, we'll talk about the RMT and why it is it they've taken this long to accept a pay deal, which they could have accepted before Christmas. 0344 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. We are Talk TV. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is Tuesday morning, big day for Boris Johnson coming tomorrow, big day for us tomorrow as well. We've got a special guest uh, on, the, uh, on the show, which we'll tell you about later on. Right now, though, let us say a very good morning to Lord Stuart Jackson, Baron Jackson of Peterborough, uh, no less, Conservative peer. Uh, Stuart, very good morning to you.
2: Good morning, Mike.
3: I'm sort of loath to start with the Metropolitan Police, but I feel like we sort of have to, because it is the big story of the day. It is a report that we were expecting uh, to be pretty critical, and it is very critical. But, I mean, how many more of these reports are we going to see before the people in charge of the Metropolitan Police actually do something about it?
2: Well, it is a shocking report, and as you say, it's a very thorough report by Baroness Louise Casey, Um, I I think it's a a long tale of woe that's gone back from the Macpherson report from the mid-90s right through uh, to today's report. And I think I don't agree with the idea that you need to break up the Met. I mean, it's a very big force. It's around 30,000 officers. But there is a culture that has led to uh, people assuming that they can get away with criminal activity, and that culture comes from the top. But I do think there needs to be more political guidance uh, from the Met. This, um, this model we have where the mayor is in charge of the Met uh, on policy issues and operational issues, the commissioner, it's a broken model. It's, it's too big. I don't know what the answer is, but I think it certainly is a good thing that we know what the problem is. And on the one hand, you do want to root out officers that are racist, uh, misogynistic, antisocial and criminal. But I do worry slightly that this will open the floodgates to wokery and it becoming a politically mm. correct force. That's what slightly worries me, because there are nine million people in the Met area that rely on a decent, hardworking police force that basically puts criminals behind bars and protects people.
3: Yes. And so I- it's,
2: it's, it's not good for any of us that, that the Met is in this terrible pile of It's states. not.
3: But the point about breaking it up, Stuart, is is, is one that I say, I, reluctantly, I've given a lot of thought to it, the point is, is that it was the police themselves that broke up the Metropolitan Police when they decided to centralise so much of it, when they decided to shut down so many police stations individually, so that there isn't anywhere to go. I mean, you'd I mean, you be lucky if you could find a police station in your area that you can go and knock on the door on and say, I'd like to report a crime, I'd like to say that my next door neighbour has been harassing me, I'd like to say that there's somebody driving up and down my street every single night in a car at high speed, putting children at risk. You can't go and find a police station to knock on the door. And if you do find one, you'll knock on the door and they'll say, ring this number. And they'll say, there's a phone there and ring a central number. I think that's broken it down already into parts that don't work.
2: Yeah. And I think there's a perception which is really pernicious that there are crimes happening in London that are never going to be solved. Yeah, And that's a factor of the judicial system it also is a factor, I have to say, of um it's it's a it's a function of of light sentencing. Uh it's not a resources issue because generally speaking, this idea that it's all the fault of austerity is nonsense. But you're right, Mike. When I was a London Borough Councillor thirty years ago, we had a good relationship as a council with our borough commander. Yeah. We knew who he was, we had local I mean, in, in my case I lived in Ealing, I was a councillor in Ealing and we had four or five functioning Uh, more or less 24-7 police stations. Mm. And you also saw your community police beat officer at uh, at community meetings, council meetings. I'm not sure you see that now. I mean, my dad was a community beat officer in South East London for 25 years. And, you know, I think a lot of professional police officers really rue the day that we moved to this very centralised, uh, model right. of policing which doesn't
3: seem to work. No, and that's what I mean. So so why not go back to that? And that it's not effectively... It's not doing away with the Metropolitan Police, but it's just saying, why don't you take, you know, each borough, uh, have the boroughs have their own police departments, have their own police stations, build a few of them, you know, give a bit more work out to the building community, and then you can still have the overarching, you know, kind of management system which is in charge of the armed police, the anti-terrorist squad, all of the, you know, the big sort of major units that they need to have... But, I mean, it just seems to me that whatever it is that they're doing isn't working and it's been not working now for a long time. And to the point about the justice system, then surely the government is responsible for changing that, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and I think the Home Secretary's challenge now is how politically she got a lot on her plate, obviously, with the whole immigration issue uh, and what we may talk about later, which is uh, refugees or asylum seekers in hotels, etc. But I think this is the preeminent police force in Europe, it's world famous, Scotland Yard is world famous, it's a stain on fair play and British values that it's been so traduced in this report. And I think urgently it it does need to be looked at. But my my view is that um, we have, in some senses, we've moved to a leadership model where they valued uh, having a university degree more than practical Mm. experience in life. And I I think the same is happening, for instance, in nursing, where, you know, you can't start as a nurse trainee until you've got a degree. You know, let's look at people's practical life experiences, knowledge, skills, experience, rather than just having a degree. And I think we've got to go back and look at that culture as well as the macho, uh, you know, canteen culture that Louise Casey is criticising.
3: Absolutely right. Let's have a listen to what Baroness Casey told Talk TV's Kate McCann uh, a little bit earlier. She was talking about whether the Met has ever faced up to its problems.
1: They're in denial. I think that they think by admitting that there is a problem, that somehow then that will make public confidence drop public confidence has dropped because they will not admit to there being a problem and therefore they won't do anything about it. And that's the thing that needs to shift. It is a dire situation. I think the report that I've written, based on such a weight of evidence and a weight of testimony, does really lay bare how pretty difficult it is for the Met in London. Um, And I think consent of us to be policed by the Met is certainly at risk, if not broken. So yes, it's a pretty pretty tough reading report.
3: I mean obviously we'll be talking about this later on um, Stuart so we'll we'll move off it very shortly but I mean how quickly do you think you should expect Mark Rowley to be able to sort this out to start to begin to sort it out I mean I said just last week if they've got what he regards as several hundred miscreant police officers many of whom might have been found guilty of a criminal offence some of whom are charged with criminal offences surely he needs to just be able to get them out of the force doesn't he?
2: Yeah, I think there's two things they need to do immediately um, in terms of operational issues rather than the politics. So the politics is a big issue. And I think there will be a consensus across Parliament Mm. that this needs to happen. But the two things they need to do, they need to go forward with uh, accelerated disciplinary proceedings. It's crazy that people are allowed to resign early when they're facing very serious cases, whether it's, it's feeding intel to drug dealers, whether it's sexual assault, these are serious issues. They can't be allowed to drag on for ages with the police federation supporting them. I don't believe that people should be treated unfairly. But actually, you, if you meet the criminal uh, bar for, for action, you should be out of the police very quickly. So that's the first thing. Um, and even more fundamentally, I think they need to massively improve their vetting procedures. It's crazy that, yeah, some of them are on the police national database for previous convictions which is crazy in itself that they're serving members of Mm. the metropolitan police but everyone needs to be properly robustly vetted and if you have uh, i mean a parking ticket is one thing but if you've been committed uh, you've been uh, convicted of a serious criminal offense there is no place for you Full stop in the Metropolitan Police or any other police
3: force. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So, ask anyway, Stuart, if you would, Stuart Jackson's with us. Um, Baron Jackson of Peterborough, of course. We're going to talk about the migrant crisis, uh, the number of hotels now being commandeered, the Rwanda policy, and also Boris Johnson and his appearance tomorrow uh, before the Privileges Committee. Four hours of it you're going to get. Uh, I say it's a waste of money. This is Talk TV.
2: The home of common sense. Talk radio and Talk TV.
3: Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, Natasha in Wiltshire says this. Mike, Stuart just is so right with his prediction of police becoming even more woke after the Casey report, the equality, diversity and inclusion machine will ramp up more and more money spent on it rather than solving crime and doing the actual job. Uh, you're so right in wanting local police stations, I wouldn't have a clue where to find a police officer these days. And I think that goes for an awful lot of people up and down the country. But let's move on, Stuart, uh, if we can, uh, to what's going on uh, with the Tory party and uh, Suella Braverman's campaign to try and get this Rwanda plan off the ground. There's been an awful lot of nastiness over the weekend, some terrible doctoring of pictures and nasty kind of lefty elements trying to make out that, you know, the Conservative Party is akin to the German Nazi Party of the 1930s. Absolutely disgraceful kind of um, what I would call bottom-feeding political views, you know. Um, But what the reality of all of this is, is that as the rhetoric goes on, more and more hotels are being commandeered. And we've now got a situation where the number of hotels has doubled in the last five months alone, housing thousands more migrants as they keep coming in.
2: Yeah, it's a very difficult situation. And what concerns me is that the government is going forward with a policy with Rwanda that will work, I think it's something actually that's been undertaken by a lot of countries in Europe that they have at least looked at the feasibility of that. We've actually done it. We are helping uh, a developing country in Rwanda and also solving our own problem. But the the fundamental issue is the reach of the European Convention of Human Rights. And that is, I mean, you you saw a case today of an Iranian rapist uh, who's been found guilty in a UK court, um, who's... Uh, not going to be sent back to Iran when he's concluded his sentence because he's a rapist and he might be persecuted. I mean, that's the sort of crazy Mm. uh, policy that we've got now. And unless we fundamentally sort out the relationship between um, extra uh, national, supranational legal bodies like the European Court of Human Rights and our own domestic legislation, we're not going to solve this problem. We really need to take tough action. Good luck to the government. They've started. But I think the British people are not going to tolerate this year another 40, 50, 60,000 people coming to the UK on boats. And, you know, the the hotels uh, policy that the government has has pursued is very difficult and it's caused a lot of angst at local level. But I I think and I believe that it's a temporary phenomenon and a year's time we won't be in the same situation.
3: No, but I mean, even if it stopped dead right now and nobody else came and somehow that was a, that was a good thing, um, then we'd still have this massive backlog, which is sort of 150,000, 160,000 and counting.
2: Yeah, and you've got to ask yourself why people want to come to the United Kingdom. We're, we're told actually by the more hysterical uh, folk that uh, doctored those pictures of Suella Brabham and that we're a rain-swept, grey, little England, nationalistic, xenophobic place. But funnily enough, (laughs) hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, want to come here and make their life here. So, you know, we have a very proud record. If you look at what we've done in Hong Kong, if you look at what we've done in Ukraine and Syria, going back the last 10 years, we've a very enviable record in the way we've dealt with genuine people fleeing persecution and dictatorial regimes across the world. But what we are not prepared to do is uh, is importing to this country criminal elements from countries that are not in the same situation. And I say again, Albania, you know, a lot of people from Albania are coming here. They, they're traveling through many European countries. Albania is not a war. It's a second world country developing fast. And frankly, the British people will not accept that. Yeah. They will not have their hospitality and decency and values produced and undermined for mass migration. And it's actually immoral not to protect your borders because if you do that, if you fail to protect your borders, all you're doing is giving sustenance to people yeah. traffickers. So we actually have to sort out this
3: problem. Well, exactly right. But the problem is is that the, the, the ability for people to come here for decades has basically undermined the system. Because what you hear all the time now is people, particularly those on the lawyer's side of the, uh, of the sort of human rights brigade, they go, oh, well, a lot of these people are coming because they've got family here you know, who are now British. Well, the reason they've got family here is because they came here some years ago uh, and somehow were admitted because it took so long for them to get a son. But they're now here. So they're now sending for members of their family. Nobody ever asks the question, are you sure they're related? Do they?
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and they're even complaining about the uh, biometric tests mm. to assure that people are genuinely children. Yeah. Human rights lawyers are saying that's against their human rights. Essentially, there are a group of people in this country, human rights lawyers, immigration lawyers. It's a nice bum that they get. They want to keep the work coming. And in addition to that, they believe, and it's a fair point of view, but it's completely anathema to most people in this country, in open borders and no immigration Mm -hmm. controls. We're the most populated country in Europe in terms of density. We do need to have immigration, obviously, for the economy and other reasons, but we need to have it controlled. And I think that's where most people are, rather than the egotistical, um, crisp salesman Gary Lineker Mm. living in his mansion, spending more time with his tax accountants so he doesn't have to pay tax. Uh, Those sorts of people are
3: completely out of touch. Mm, Absolutely right. I actually heard one of these bleeding-heart lefty lawyers on Vanessa Velt's show yesterday who basically said um, that not only uh, was it our responsibility uh, to bring all these people here, um, and not only was it against their human rights to be sent to a place like Rwanda, which was apparently a very dangerous place where if you disagree with the government, you get locked up, but she also said that basically um, there was absolutely no room uh, to have any doubt about how everybody could come here because you know we have a responsibility to the rest of the world. Well, I'm sorry, we don't have a responsibility to, to save the world. It's a very small country here.
2: Exactly. I do think that, that there are some special cases that we do need to be mindful of. I, I would personally be very benign in the treatment of uh, Afghan translators. These are people that put yeah. their lives at risk to look after the interests of the British Armed Forces. They and their families have a perfect right to come here because of the service they gave to our country, and there are other parts of the world. I mean, I would I would try and help women seeking to leave Iran who are being uh, persecuted, some of them being tortured and mm. murdered for uh, for the right to be themselves as as women. And those are the sort of people. But that that is not the same as criminal endeavours, criminal gangs, people traffickers from Eastern Europe who are gaming the system. And yeah. I think the government is absolutely right. And I, and all power to Suella Brotherman for having the mm. moral courage uh, and the resilience to deal with it. Yeah.
3: And the other good one, which I heard yesterday, is that if uh, it's, uh, illegal asylum seekers and illegal migrants were allowed to work, um, the ones who have got into the shadows, having come here many, many years ago, perhaps, if they were allowed to be legal and they were allowed to pay taxes and all of that, you could have an immediate one million person boost to the economy. Well, that tells you how much of it's going on. If there's a million people working in the black economy, you know, we really need to know about that.
2: The system just doesn't work. I mean, you remember when we, I was involved in it, when we created the Surveillance Authority for EU migrants yeah. who had settled in the UK as part of the deal to leave the European Union. We thought there were 3.2 million EU migrants in this country. It turned out there were over 5 million. We just didn't know how many there were how they'd come here, what they were doing, what taxes they were paying. So. There is a a big black economy, an Mm. informal economy, and I think dealing with immigration will get that uh, situation sorted out. We do want people to come to this country, but we want them to have demonstrable skills, to be good citizens, to pay taxes and share our British values. Uh, That's the difference.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Final uh, touch upon the Boris Johnson hearings tomorrow. Uh, It'll be four hours, I'm sure, for some of absolutely not a riveting um, answers to questions. For others, it'll be complete and utter tedium Uh, I'll be recording a TV show, unfortunately, through most of it, so I won't see much of it until later on. Um, I've said earlier, uh, Stuart, this week, that it's a bit of a colossal waste of public money and time, isn't it?
2: Well, I would call it a kangaroo court, but that would be rude to pouch to marsupials. (laughs) Uh, I mean, frankly, it's a High Court of Parliament. It is a court. And in a court, you follow the rules. And the rules are very clear. In 1997, the House of Commons established in its standing orders the fact that you could not just mislead parliament, but you had to be found to have knowingly misled parliament. And it seems to me that the House of Commons Privileges Committee is setting that aside. First of all, I don't think Harriet Harman is an impartial chair. No. She is skinning the game. She's made public pronouncements. She should have accused herself, just as Chris uh, Bryant did. I I think it will be a show trial. I think it's a personal vendetta against Boris Johnson uh, and it will, it will damage parliament. And some of the more pompous people in the House of Lords have said, well, you know, people shouldn't, uh, who, who sit in the Lords shouldn't comment on the Commons. Well, that's nonsense. I pay my taxes uh, to elect MPs and to run the government of every right to comment, even as a member uh, of, the, of the House of Lords. And I think my final point is, if you remember way back 30 years ago, when uh, Republicans went after Bill Clinton over Monica Lewinsky and they instituted the Ken Starr Inquiry Mm. and there was a big report. Clinton came out of that winning. He subsequently won re-election and it bounced back. The blowback was on the Republicans in uh, the House of Representatives Mm. and the Senate. And I think it will damage Parliament. And if you're going to start on this retrospective um, witch hunt, then let's get tony blair up for the iraq war yeah uh mis- knowingly misleading with his mendacious sidekick Alistair campbell yeah that took britain to war so you know you're opening a pandora's got box but i think in this case boris has got a strong case we're going to see that today and i think he will be exonerated and i i find it inconceivable that the commons will vote to uh remove a former prime minister as one of their members
3: yeah i Couldn't agree more with you. Uh, Stuart, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Lord Stuart Jackson uh, there, Baron Jackson of Peterborough, uh, with a resounding um, backing uh, for former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. We'll be having all of that for you tomorrow, of course. It starts at two o'clock after Prime Minister's questions right here uh, on Talk TV. Coming next, Susan Hall joins us, uh, the Tory leader uh, of the London Assembly. She'll have plenty to say about the Metropolitan Police and probably Sadiq Khan.
2: On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
3: Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Coming up, we're going to be speaking to Susan Hall, who is the uh, chairman of the Police and Crime Committee at London Assembly, uh, also the Tory leader, of course, as well. Uh, She's going to tell us what she makes uh, of this report that has just come out. Of course, the one which is damning, the one which has called the Metropolitan Police racist, misogynistic and homophobic. Let's go live now, though, uh, to Ollie Whitfield-Mirchich, who's outside Scotland Yard, For us, Uh, he's Talk TV's very own man in the scene. He's got the key findings of the report for us. Oli, very good morning to you.
4: Very good morning, Mike.
3: So, I mean, I don't suppose many people would have been surprised at the verdict, but there has been some shock at the detail of the verdict. Tell us what the sort of main uh, points of it are.
4: The main points are a complete need for structural, for cultural and leadership change at the Met. The Met has been found by Baroness Casey to have not safeguarded women and children, to have put some of its most highly vulnerable groups within its workforce at risk of bullying. They've been taunted, talking here about members from the LGBTQ plus community, those from minority ethnic groups, Uh, the lack of having even basic processes, it would seem, in place. Freezers, which are used to hold rape kits and evidence for rape convictions, not working during the heatwave last summer, which meant that evidence for those trials then had to be thrown out, meaning that trials collapsed because of those failures. The independent review, which has been carried out by Baroness Casey, has accused the police yet again of being institutionally racist. This is 24 years after the McPherson inquiry found exactly the same in the wake of Stephen Lawrence's racially motivated murder, but now adding on that it is institutionally sexist as well as homophobic too. Baroness Casey is clear that she wants all of her recommendations, of which there are quite a few, to be implemented in full. She says that the Met Police cannot pick and mix what it decides it wants to implement. Yesterday when we were speaking to Sir Mark Rowley, the uh, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, he was saying that while he accepts the report, he accepts that there are racists, that there are misogynists and that there are homophobes working he does not accept the words institutional and that he couldn't give us a cast iron guarantee that everything would be implemented only going as far to say that they will try as far as humanly possible to do so
3: Thank you very much, Oliver. Um, we'll come back to you later on in the show. We'll find out uh, what else are the actual uh, specific details, because some of them are incredibly uh, minute in terms of the numbers of police officers that have actually spoken uh, to Baroness Casey. Let's talk now though to Susan Hall, Chair of the Police and Crime Committee at the London Assembly. Susan, very good morning to you.
5: Good morning, Mike.
3: I mean, I don't think anyone is that surprised at uh, what has come out of this particular report. But what I've been saying this morning, Susan, is that All these police officers who say how sorry they are, and I include Mark Rowley in this, because he was in it uh, at the time when some of this stuff was going on, Um, they don't seem to have been aware very much of what was going on inside their own organisation. And I know that it's a big organisation, but surely they should have been better at seeing what was going on beneath their very feet, as it were.
5: Well, one would have hoped so, and one would hope that in the future they are. But I think there's 35,000 police officers, uniformed police officers, around 10,000 other staff. It, it is a massive organisation. And if you're in a, a neighbourhood policing unit, for instance, that works really well, and so very many of them do, you might not see any of this going on. It's certainly the worst things seem to have been going on in these specialist units, yeah. the firearms units and the protection units. Yeah. I mean, that part of the report. It's eye-watering. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, Mark Rowley has got a really big job ahead and he has got to succeed in this for everybody's sake, quite frankly.
3: Yes, indeed. And so would it seem to you then that some of those specialist units like the uh, diplomatic squad where Wayne Cousins was and, and maybe some of the armed police units are kind of left alone because they're doing specific tasks or because they're, uh, they're able to carry guns and so they're considered to be kind of untouchable? Is that what was going on? Uh, Reading the report, one would
5: get that impression. Um, Certainly some of us that know some of these officers um, are astonished by what we're reading and saddened by it. I mean, Mark Rowley said, when you read the report, there are so many different emotions. And yes, I I can completely recognise that because we all want the Metropolitan Police to do well. We all need it to do well. We need our police officers and need a, a good running police service. Uh, that's why police officers aren't allowed to strike because they are absolutely necessary for us to function as a democratic society so i only hope that everybody assists as they can the staff everybody employs has got to really buy into this and do what they can from within um and certainly wherever else we you know we all need to hope that it changes to uh, monitor what it's doing so that it can change. But there will be units within the police that don't haven't been aware of this. If they've stayed more or less in the same job in a unit of people that are working well, then there's no
3: mm.
5: no reason they would have come across it.
3: No of course. And I mean what's Sadiq's Khan role in all of this? Because um nobody's quite sure. He's kind of titularly in charge of the Metropolitan police, is he not? Or at least he's in uh, he's in a position to influence who gets what job Um, is he bearing any responsibility in any of this?
5: Well, he is the Police and Crime Commissioner of London, which I point out on many occasions. We all know Sadiq Khan will never take responsibility for anything. He never has done. Um, He has a great big organisation, MOPAC, um, which, which is supposed to oversee the Met. And I do wonder what's been going on we've got a big committee tomorrow where we've got Baroness Casey coming and the Deputy Mayor for policing Sophie Linden she's supposed to be keeping an eye on all this and I, I do wonder what she's been doing in all of all of this and, and why she wasn't more aware of what was going on uh, but yes of course Sadiq Khan must take some responsibility he can't just shirk this one off
3: well no I mean he's saying this morning that it's a very dark day uh, as though it's got nothing to do with him um, and that somehow he asked for this commission uh, to be uh, to to do this report um and he seems to be distancing himself from it uh, every chance he can get
5: well that's what he will do i think it was cressida dick that actually asked for this report um and you know he'll he'll claim he'll claim he did
1: right.
5: uh, you know what he's like Mike. Yeah. I mean, you know but he he actually has to look at this and he has to look in the mirror and think what am i responsible for yeah. and you know, the the main thing is the police
3: Because the people of London deserve better. And I think actually the police individually deserve better management because the police individually in the Metropolitan Police are good people. You know, they're doing a hard job. Uh, They're facing dangerous situations on any given day. Um, And I don't want to see them taking the brunt of the blame for all of this. But I was saying to Stuart Jackson a little while ago, you know the sort of breakdown of the the old-fashioned police model where you had local police stations where you had people if not walking around on the beach certainly driving around and you just don't see any of that now you know i i I challenge him even in the rest of the country to tell to find somebody who can say i know my local police station is open i know i can go and report a crime there because you can't
5: no i think one of the biggest mistakes and i know that um Certainly, um, Lord Greenhouse was definitely against it, was the opening of the BCUs, the um, borough command units, as opposed to having your own person in charge of each borough, um, a borough commander. That worked really Mm. well because that person could work with the local councils, the local fire brigade, and you had a much better joined up, um, working arrangement between all the emergency services and the councils, etc. Mm. Um, I was very much against that being put in, and it's something that she has highlighted here. I have spoken in the past to Sir Mark Rowley about this, as I did to Cressida Dick, mm. because I think the trust and confidence has plummeted since we brought in the, what we call the BCUs.
3: But we've been hearing this for years now, and I mean, I know that Wayne Cousins was a specifically ghastly um, incident and a horrible thing that happened. But, you know, we've been having one of these reports of every few years for a while now, going all the way back to the McPherson report, you know, in the 90s. And, and it doesn't seem to have changed anything.
5: Things have changed um, within the police force. There's no doubt about that. But it needs to change even more and quicker. Um, it's a, it's it's like a massive tanker going along. Mm. And there are really big changes that have got to take place. And Mark Rowley has admitted this. He's, he's said he's up for the challenge um and and then his deputy is extremely good they are they are seasoned police officers if you like they know how things work and they have got to get to grips with it because the public quite rightfully won't put up with it but the thing i worry about is that uh, you know that the babies will go out with the dishwasher because water because there are so many good police officers out there they feel this really badly um, and we don't want them leaving we've got a real recruitment problem as it is mm. now anyway no. Exactly. Uh, um, we need the police.
3: Well Baroness Casey told uh, Talk TV's Kate McCann, uh, Talk TV's political officer that there was a toxic male environment at the Met. There
1: are parts of the Met police that are a boys club um, and you know I've laid that bare in the report um, I think that there are elements that are almost completely white and male and that needs to change.
6: And do you believe that there could still be other Wayne Cousins in the Met police at the moment today?
1: I do not think I can assure you, all the people watching this programme, that without any, that that is not an impossible thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you fix all of that overnight. I mean, you're talking about a long, (laughs) long road. Do you think it would be best to start again and break it up? Or do you agree with uh, Stuart Jackson that, that that wouldn't be good?
5: No, it wouldn't be good. It really wouldn't be good. First of all, you can't stop it and start it again. Uh, We need police. We need police on the streets every single day being heroes, as so many of them are. I mean, we we forget that. We we need to deal with it as it moves along because it just can't be stopped just there and and look to see if we can get a better model. That's not how life works. Of course, nobody can guarantee that there isn't another Wayne Cousins out there. There's 35,000 warranted officers out there. Of course they can't. And I think it will get worse before it gets better as Sir Mark and his top team are trying to uh, pull out the ones that, you know, shouldn't be in there. I mean, the other thing that we mustn't forget is that Mark Rowley can't just suck people like you could if you were running a business. Um, I think yeah, something like 8,800 are on restricted yeah. duty. Well, maybe
3: maybe that should change. Maybe you should be able to sack people who have been, particularly those who have been found guilty of criminal acts. seems bizarre no, yes. to most ordinary people that you can be a criminal and a police officer at the same time.
5: Yes, but the Home Secretary is looking into that. I, I spoke to Chris Philp, the policing minister, about that a couple of times now. They're looking to see how they can change that and change it they must. Because if you know you've got a wrong one, especially working for the police a service mm. you need to get rid of that person. We can't we can't be having them on restricted yeah. duties.
3: Well there's not then, many jobs there's not many jobs you can hold on to if you've got a criminal conviction, particularly if it's quite a serious offence. And it's rather odd absolutely. that the one place you can stay in your job is as a police officer.
5: Absolutely. I mean the commissioner of the fire brigade actually said he was in a much better position than Mark Rowley mm. because he could get rid of firefighters that were that shouldn't be there. Whereas Mark Rowley can't do it. He has got to be given the authority to be able to do that. And that that has to come really high up on the yeah. list. that he can deal with these officers because until he does, until he gets rid of the ones that they know are a problem, We can't turn the corner, Mm. and he
3: is absolutely determined to. I know he will. Okay, Susan, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Susan Hall, Chair of the Police and Crime Committee at London Assembly, leader of the Tories uh, there as well. Harry says, so the rainbow-clad Met are homophobic. Okay, sounds legit. Uh, And this one uh, from uh, John in Chingford. My brother was a PCSO based in Tottenham ten years ago. Racism within the Met was usually committed by those of a higher rank. In my brother's station, the main racist was his sergeant. He left because of racism and bullying. Thanks, John. The main racist. I mean... It's not really a phrase you are expecting to hear from a police officer. Dorothy from Glasgow, I believe the wokery that has been instilled into the police force is the root of the problem. Tweets are investigated before theft, having to be sensitive around people's feelings, rainbow cars. This is what comes from the seniors down the line. The institutional issues mentioned are allowed to fester as the officers are not disciplined or sacked, but merely given a slap on the wrist. Rank and file officers have lost respect for the job. If a police officer commits any crime, boot them out. We need to get back to investigating and solving crime, regardless of gender, colour or creed. Well said, Dorothy go absolutely right spot on in fact coming up uh, we'll take some of your calls and we'll have a conversation about the latest from the net zero brigade welcome back to the independent republic of mike graham right here on talk tv with you all the way through until one o'clock when it's time of course for ian collins he'll be here to take you through the afternoon tomorrow. uh, We're going to have a very exciting day. It's going to be Prime Minister's Questions at midday, followed at two uh, by Boris Johnson, the former Prime Minister up before the Privileges Committee. We're told uh, he's going to sit there for four hours. So whether or not we bring you all of that will rather depend on just how riveting it is. But it will certainly be uh, a very, very important piece of television. So you might want to stay right here on Talk TV and listen to it and watch it. Boris Johnson will no doubt be putting up a sterling defence, as you heard Stuart Jackson earlier this morning, uh, Lord Jackson himself, saying that he thinks that it's a kangaroo court but that might be insulting to kangaroos i think there's no doubt uh, that at the end of the day uh, it will be proven to be a complete and utter waste of time i don't really believe uh, they're going to be able to come to a conclusion about whether boris johnson misled parliament deliberately or otherwise because it's too long ago uh, it's too far away and not enough of the facts can ever be known it's that simple so why bother would be my point. Let's talk about something far more important, though, to the future, not only of our um, exchequer, but the future of the pound in our pockets. Because guess what? The United Nations has been at it again, as you heard in the last hour, sounding yet another alarm about net zero targets. They say that we're not getting to them soon enough and we need to get to them quicker, otherwise it'll all be over and there won't be any point in impeaching people anymore, there won't be any point in banning or suspending people from Parliament because, quite simply, the world will have come to a, t- a terrible end. Uh, let's talk to Ross Clark, journalist and author of Not Zero, uh, how an irrational target will impoverish you, help China and won't even save the planet. Um, It's a great title for a book. Uh, Ross, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. So, apparently we're not doing enough and we're not doing it quickly enough and the United Nations have had to fly loads of people to Switzerland to decide that that's the case and now they're telling us why.
7: Yes, yeah. I mean, there's no new science in this report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is what's called a synthesis report. We had the science 18 months ago and really all this is is a piece of sort of PR trying to sort of... uh, you know, batter us further into uh, with more um, hyperbole mm. and so on, on on climate change. But well, what what is new is that the secretary general of the U.N. has called for um, countries to set themselves or certainly wealthy countries to set themselves legally binding targets to um, achieve net zero by 2040. Well, I mean, that's ten years earlier than Britain's um, has, has existing target. Um, It's five years earlier than any country has set itself a legally binding target. And frankly, there is virtually zero chance of um, um, the the world getting anywhere near to net zero by 2040 without, you know, because it would cause just complete destruction of the global economy. Yes.
3: Well, Um, they're they're calling here for a 43% reduction in gas emissions. Now, I mean, that's just not uh, conceivably possible, is it?
7: Well, no, it is. I mean, it's, it's it's not just about energy. I mean, you know, we, we've sort of reduced carbon emissions in Britain by um, by switching to sort of a bit of renewable energy, although it's still going to be backed up by gas powered plants. Um, but it's not just about energy. There's things like iron and steel industries, cement industries, um, that they all, achieve, they all produce very large quantities of carbon emissions. And we've no way yet we don't have any commercialized technology to avoid those emissions it may you know people working on it it may be in future we have them but the idea that we can sort of suddenly get there by 2040 just because we'd like to it is ridiculous frankly but there's a very wide um, uh, gulf in the world between those countries which are taking it seriously and those which aren't um you look at the countries which like britain have a legally binding target to reach net zero, most of them by 2050. Well, there's only 17 of those Mm. and they exclude China and the US.
8: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com.
7: That's the world's biggest emitters, which between them account for 45% of global emissions. And without them, I mean, you know, there's very little that these other 17 countries, which includes uh, tiddlers like Fiji and Lux- Luxembourg, um, there's very little they can do to, to get anywhere close to sort of uh, reducing uh, carbon, global carbon emissions by any meaningful um, uh, amount. And yes you know, these other countries, they're not showing any inclination to move into that box of the 17 countries of legally binding emissions. China has a sort of vague ambition to decarbonize by 2060, but it still says emissions will rise until 2030. The US, Joe Biden, you know, he's a hero because he's not Donald Trump, a hero to some climate activists, but he's shown seen no interest in setting a legally binding target for the us he you know he's just set. what he's done is put this sort of um inflation reduction act which is really a piece of protectionism in disguise to make sure that americans buy electric cars made in america rather than in china and, and all sorts of games going on, but no, there is absolutely zero chance the world's going to get anywhere close to net zero by 2040.
3: Exactly right. I mean, Gutierrez, Antonio Gutierrez, the UN man, uh, has basically said that um, if he can get the movement to 2040, uh, he said that oil and gas companies must be part of the solution. Um, and he's hopeful uh, that when COP28 takes place in Dubai... Um, that uh, there will be some movement. But, of course, the only thing that they manage to ever agree, uh, any COP meeting, is where the next one's going to be, and it's usually somewhere exotic.
7: Well, exactly, and they all... You know, the the, the emissions of each COP meeting increase at a sort of time <laughs> when they're, they're expecting the emissions of everything else to right. go down. So it's completely sort of um, ridiculous. I mean, the next COP is going to be chaired by the sort of oil executive as yeah. well. You know, it's... Um, you know, I mean... I'm all in favour of reducing emissions, developing technologies to go towards clean energy. Of course we should do that. The world should invest in that very heavily. But, you know, it's it's sort of setting these top-down targets. You'll do it by,
1: yeah. you
7: know, 2050, 2040 and magically expecting all this technology to come yeah. into it. But also it's know, always it more expensive.
3: You. you know, I've always said that, listen, people would buy electric cars absolutely, you know, by the, by the million if they were cheaper. But they're not cheaper. Uh, they would buy electric cars if it was easy to charge them, if it was easy to drive them long distances. But none of those things are true, unfortunately. But one of the big recommendations is that you buy an electric car instead of a petrol or a diesel car. The Intergovernmental, plan, uh, intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change also says communities can influence political support to reduce climate change. Don't know what that means. They also say uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change suggests uh, communities reclaim green spaces. What does that mean, that somebody's going to clamber over your fence and reclaim your garden? I have no idea what that means. But um, they were tending electric cars, for example. I mean, there's no
7: country on Earth is sort of more goody-goody on this kind of setting its targets than Germany. Right. It has a net zero target by 2045, apparently. That's when it's going to achieve carbon neutrality. But, I mean, look what's happened in the last year. Germany has reopened car- um, coal mines because it's lost Putin's gas and needs to keep the lights on. The car industry has just squashed the um, European Union's plan to outlaw all petrol and diesel cars by 2035. Um, You know, Germany's not going towards its target. We managed to reduce emissions by an average of 2% over the past. Per year over the past mm. decade. But I mean, just to reach its 2030 target, it needs to reduce emissions by 6% a year. I mean, it's, it's absolutely nowhere near
1: yeah.
7: getting there. And, you know, for good reasons, because, um, uh, you know, to, when you start trying to eliminate carbon emissions, you drive up the cost of everything and make mm. things. And once again, fractured. we've
3: got the, the, the sort of the final death knell warning, which is that, you know, after next year or something, we haven't committed to all of this, it will be too late. And we won't be able to reverse it. We hear this, I think, every single year. It's like the boy who cried wolf. You know, the world is going to come to an end in, you know, pick a year and then advance it every 10 years, because when it doesn't happen, you have to go, well, it hasn't happened yet, but it will. It will definitely happen. As I said, the IPCC uh, prepared themselves in a report uh, in the late 80s um, for a massive flood hitting part of Europe, which would have included engulfing... Uh, large parts of London and many other cities in uh, uh, in the European continent with water, and they said that a lot of Canary Wharf, for example, would be underwater. Well, it isn't, and it won't be.
7: Well, I think the um, the Pentagon went went further, went one further, and said that Britain by 2020 would have a, a Siberian climate. It said, well,
3: that didn't exactly. Doesn't happen. look too bad out there today. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's been a bit cold, but I must say it yes. doesn't seem much like Siberia.
7: Well, when you hear the IPCC saying things like, you know, this is our final warning. Yeah. you say, Well, good, well, they're not going to bother to publish any more reports. Right. Of course they will. They'll, You know, there'll be another final warning mm. in five years' time and so on. But that, what what this, um, it's an important point. This is There is this enormous gulf between what is in the IPCC report, the actually the science, which was published 18 months ago, and the sort of hyperbole which gets sort of generated by Guterres and mm. other people around it. And I mean, if you look at the, the actual science before, you read it in detail, you know, there are some climatic trends in the world which are very inconvenient and, you know, we, we would want to stop the more people dying of the heat. But then of course there are also fewer people dying of the cold and cold kills far more people than the heat does. Well, actually, there's a sort of net reduction in extreme heat deaths. And um, a lot you'd never guess from the sort of reporting around this, for example, that Britain and much of the world, North Atlantic certainly is becoming less stormy, not more stormy. We're all told that, you know, we're going to be uh, drowned and um, battered by sort of freak storms all the time. You know, temperatures are rising, and sort of rainfall is rising in line with that because warmer air contain can contain more moisture. But you know, a lot of the um, claims around sort of extreme weather mm. are are, are you know, absolutely not supported by the science, which is published in the IPCC report. And I yeah. just don't know what happens between the scientists actually, you know, coming up with their their um, their contribution and then the sort of politicians and and the IPCC um, grandees, you know, coming up with this um, hyperbolic stuff telling us we're all going to die in the next few years if we don't sort of you know, basically end industrial civilisation. It is just absolutely bizarre, the sort of um, dichotomy between the IPCC science and, you know, what comes out of the the far end.
3: Yeah, exactly right. And don't start talking to me about modelling. We'll have to do that another time. Ross Clark, thank you very much indeed. Journalist and author of Not Zero. Great name for a book. Uh, As you might be surprised, and I'm not surprised to hear, uh, he's got some quite interesting views uh, on exactly what it is that is behind this kind of net zero rush to madness. Because we all know um, that if you wanted to sort of make things easier for the planet, there would be plenty of things you could do. One of them would not be flying in a lot of private jets to go to yet another UN uh, climate conference, somewhere in the world where nobody lives near. Bad idea. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, It certainly doesn't look like Siberia out there, as we've been talking to Ross Clark a moment ago. Uh, It's not actually too bad for a Tuesday. Uh, The rain has stopped. Laura Dodsworth is here. Things are looking up. It's brighter already. Welcome to the show. Good morning. We missed you last week.
6: I know. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I missed being here. It's always good to be here. We will let you
3: off, obviously. Thank you. Just now, the occasional
6: absence. Of course,
3: you're, it's allowed. I mean, the thing is, there's so much to discuss today, isn't there? Mm. So, I mean, we've got the Metropolitan Police report, which doesn't come as any great surprise, I think, to most people. Apart yeah. from a lot of police who I keep listening to, who keep saying, "I didn't know that that was as bad as it was," and it's like, "Well, mm. why didn't you know?" Uh, we've got the Scottish Health Chief so it's saying that maybe it was a mistake to shut the schools in Scotland. Oh. <laughs> (laughs)
6: hindsight hey now let's talk about that Nicola Sturgeon on
3: loose women was a weird one for me as well but we'll talk about that again later you want to talk about kids and schools and things don't you
6: I really do actually and um, you know it's quite funny off the back of me not being here last week will (coughs) I become a persistent truant well Mike Graham we
3: don't punish truants here at the (laughs) Independent Republic it's okay
6: well, I'm glad that you don't. Um, our levelling up secretary, Michael Gove, mm. has been in the papers talking about how perhaps child benefit should be stopped for the parents of persistent truants. Yeah. Now, this is a huge conversation at the moment. It's not the first time this idea has been, been mooted, but it's a huge issue at the moment because right now there are... There's, there's an epidemic of quiet quitting mm. going on in schools, basically. Yeah. Absence is through the roof yeah. since lockdown. Um, the Children's Commissioner brought out a report this month. There are over 600,000 children who are persistently absent due to illness. Right. And there's over a million, in addition, who are also persistently absent. And I'm
3: not surprised by that figure either, because why wouldn't they be? You know, they lived through mm. two years of don't go to school, it might be dangerous for you. Um, or if you do go to school, you have to adhere to all these ridiculous rules. Now we've also got the double whammy of teachers going on strike. So people are going, yeah. well, why would I bother?
6: I think that it is it is a double whammy. I think it's had a really big psychological effect on children and families. Not in a way at all that needs to be punished mm. by withdrawing child benefit, though. Um, the way it's already been put is that a social contract was broken during lockdown. The thing is, we told children and we told families that actually because, you know, certain groups of people are really at risk, because we're going to save the NHS, which, of course, wasn't saved at all, you're not going to school. We had the second longest school closures in Europe mm. after Italy. Yeah. Children missed about a year of school. That doesn't even take into account the pandemic. If you remember that terrible yes. phase where, you know, whole classrooms or clusters of children mm. were taken out by one child having a positive test result. And it was all
3: done in a very random and unscientific way. I know this yeah. from my own children's stories of how somebody would be tested positive and then they would remove the sort of people say to the left, but not the people to the right and you've got was to very
6: odd at the time that was based on lateral flow tests yeah. which we know from the leaked WhatsApp files in the Telegraph's lockdown mm. files they knew that they weren't accurate and that they should be followed up with PCR tests so children were being excluded from school their whole friendship groups and, and classroom clusters were being excluded from school then um then of course when they came back to school, school was a very unnatural environment. They yeah. were being told to mask. Now there are teacher strikes. You know, there are lots of different things going on. It's quite multifactorial. But essentially, if children are missing school, I think it's because at a very deep kind of psycho-spiritual level, we said to them, school doesn't matter. Yeah. It just doesn't matter. Some children got behind yeah. as well. We also know that mental health suffered. Mm. And for the children with mental health problems, accessing a diagnosis and treatment is next to impossible in my area. The waiting list for cams that 's the child and adolescent mental health services yeah. is eighteen months yeah. so you know if you 're a child who's struggling with serious issues now like OCDs agoraphobia, self-harm, depression, from, you cannot even get professional support. Some schools are also struggling with not enough teachers and mm. teaching assistants, not enough um, support in the schools. And so, you know, children are being hit by this problem from different different angles. The very idea that what parents need is child benefit to be cut is ridiculous. This is the opposite of a levelling up strategy. Mm. I felt sick when I read this. This won't actually get to, the, get to the heart of the problem at all. Michael Gove said that absence is linked with antisocial behaviour – But, you know, that correlation is not causation. It's not that you've got bad, neglectful parents, naughty children who don't go to school and then go out and cause trouble. Sure, that might be happening sometimes. But what we have now is a really deep-seated problem, I think, as a result of lockdowns.
3: Absolutely. And And, surely what they need to do as well is to analyse who it is that's off, because it may not be anything to do with the parents, it may be nothing to do with the parents, may not even know in a lot of cases that their kids are not going mm -hmm. to school. Um, But I think an awful lot of it is the way the schools are now run. I don't think they're run very well. I think, you know, I know being a teacher can be a hard job and all of that. I just don't think they're run very well.
6: Among my own, um, you know, close to home and among my own friendship group, I know four teenagers who don't go to school anymore. They don't come from the kinds of families you might even be expecting. You Mm. know, the the problem of absence is higher among, say, Irish traveller families, according to the Children's Commission report. I'm just talking about pretty standard middle-class families yeah. and it's all because of mental health problems right. so this is this is going to be a really big problem to fix I'm, a, I'm afraid quite gloomily I think we've broken a generation I don't see a way out of the, the problem yeah. for this generation and Professor Leach this Scottish um, oh, yes. public health scientist Jason Leach, Jason Leach he was said, kind of
3: their Chris Whitty wasn't he
6: yeah, so he has, he has said that he was, he was called to deliver public health messages because there wasn't enough trust in Nicola Sturgeon. This is a common thing that psychologists and behavioural scientists identify, that there's not enough public trust in politicians, so they wheel out the public health scientists to pronounce that we need to lock down mm. so that the public buy in because you had to have consent. You had to have some kind of public right. consent for these measures. And we
3: know that Matt Hancock thought we had to have fear as well
6: and fear as well so professor leach has said that lockdown might have been a mistake it was an old-fashioned problem um that might not fit the 20th century now i found this particular angle quite disingenuous Mm. because we mustn't forget that lockdowns and shutting schools were never part of our pandemic plans i don't think we've done it in this country since the bubonic plague Mm. we didn't do it in 1918 Um, It was never part of plans, um, pandemic plans that were made in 2005. This wasn't wasn't just an old-fashioned solution or a modern solution. It was no solution at all. And now we're living with Mm. the terrible consequences.
3: And you can't fix it, actually. I don't think you can fix it. Mm. It's very difficult. Because if a child, say, gets to, I don't know, 14 or 15 and they've lost interest in going to school, the best thing you probably do is to put them into some kind of apprenticeship, get them out of the educational arena Mm. and actually move them away altogether and give them something else to do because once you've lost that faith in school the system, well there's no point in stay you know, it yeah. seems to me
6: and, and the ones in their teens who were absent from school got so far behind I don't think they can catch up mm. now in Germany there was an interesting study among 400 grammar school children and it found that their IQ the average IQ of these grammar school kids had dropped from um, 112 as an average in 2002 to 105 mm. in 2020 Now, this again is correlation, not causation. We can't say, well, lockdown caused kids IQs to fail. But it's a really strong potential conclusion from the study. What we do know is that in that period of lockdowns, there's a failure of intellectual development. There are so many ways in which we can see the lockdown was really damaging to children. It's a bitter pill to swallow. I think it was damaging to to adults
3: as well, because I know that's a slightly different subject. But, you know, the way that... Adults now conduct themselves in the public arena. Yeah. Seems to me to be incredibly childish, incredibly stupid, uh, and it's almost as if I'm, I've been saying this for years. Actually, that we're evolving backwards.
6: Well, the I mean, intellectually the other, th- speaking, just like we've got a you know a truancy situation at school. or I think truancy is a really negative word. Actually, I'm going to leave that to Michael Gove. We've we've got long-term unexplained unexplained sickness problems yeah. with school. We have a kind of a similar problem, of course, with adults in the workplace. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are now looking for hybrid working or to work from home. What we're going to see probably is a lack of transmission of skills and experience from older to younger generations. Mm. I mean, there is a way that this could dumb us down professionally as well as educationally.
3: Well, I think people are deliberately dumbing themselves down in order to fit a particular narrative that they wish to project, you know, so that they will react in a bizarre way to something, you know. Because they don't like you or because they don't like um, your politics. I mean, I had a sort of peak example of it at the weekend because I've been taking a lot of flack. Because of the way that Twitter now operates, you go into Mm -hmm. areas where you didn't used to go. So a lot of people who are lefties now see my tweets. And I literally put out a picture. I was out walking my dog on the beach, and Mm -hmm. it was a lovely day, and it was some beautiful cloud formations. And I took a lovely picture of the sea and the clouds, and I thought, I'm just going to tweet, isn't Britain such a beautiful country, right? People were like, that's not Britain it's a picture of the sea. You know, you're an idiot. That's not the land. That's not the country. It's a picture of clouds. It's, you know, and I'm going, are you actually for real? You've actually mm. taken the trouble to write a tweet to be critical of my picture because you don't agree with my politics, if whatever mm. they are. And that's where we now are. Now, if that is not a sort of a dumbing down... Of the IQ of the country. I don't know what is.
6: Well, I think there's a couple of things there. There's a kind of a meanness which social media um, exaggerates yes. and lends itself to. Uh, the fact is, we are an island nation. There's a lot of coastline and sea to comment on. Right. So it's perfectly fine. Well, and I actually did say it so, to so show one a of the people. Of the beach yeah, and talk I did about actually say to somebody,
3: do you not re- think that British waters and, and, and British airspace exist then? Because that is actually part of Britain.
6: Well, we've always looked outwards, yeah. outwards from our coastline Indeed. into the sea. It's, it's part of our island But mentality. also, a view
3: from your country is also your country, isn't it?
6: Well, I think it was... A, I th- sure, absolutely. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. But the reason that this kind of attitude is coming to the fore is because there's a lot of shame about being British. Yeah. You know, we, we know from that Research Information Communication Unit and, and Prevent um, list of... <laughs> books that mark you out as far right that even books like Enid Blyton or C.S. Lewis, you know, the author of the Narnia series, um, Tolkien's Hobbit, Mm. probably because of the Shire you know, all these books mark you out as being potentially far right. We're supposed to be ashamed of our British history, our colonialism and and that, you know, I think I think there are certain swathes of people in our um, intellectual establishments, mm. civil service, the media, who don't want you to be proud of being British in any way, even no. if that's just saying isn't the beach nice. Mm.
3: I know, absolutely staggering, staggering. Um, we've got um, a couple of nice tweets here. One here from uh, uh, David who says, "I love you on uh, Mike Graham's show, intellectual and beautiful, and you're not too bad either, Laura." <laughs> 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 I think he meant you me there, obviously, <laughs> from the beginning. Um, I'll what take else it. has been going on?
6: Um, Well, I think we should talk about the Met Police report. It's made for very grim and actually quite sickening reading. So Baroness Casey's conducted her um, lengthy review into the cultural problems into the Met Police, and she's found it institutionally racist, sexist, and homophobic. I think what's quite worrying about the reaction to the report is that Mark um, Rowley. The, um, should I said Rowley? We're well,
3: always talking you know, about my pronunciation after every episode, aren't we? I hear it both ways. I now say Rowley, but go ahead and say Rowley if you wish. Mark Rowley
6: has said that he's going to, he rejects the term institutionally racist, sexist and homophobic. So he's happy to diagnose particular problems, yeah. but he doesn't want to accept that institutional label because he sees it as problematically yes. political. I think this is the kind of area of denial that the Met Police Mm. has been in for too long. Now, talking about education and children, as we just were, can you imagine now ever recommending to one of your children they join the police? Mm. Because I read some of these examples and I thought the last thing I would want for one of my sons is to be in an organisation where people have put bacon into muslim police officer's shoes yeah. or women were encouraged to eat whole cheesecakes till they vomited yeah. or a black girl was strip searched on her period mm. in an actual school mm. i mean the the those individual things that sound like small petty examples but they mount up to a culture of bullying yeah. and nastiness, and I can't imagine encouraging anyone I know no. in the younger generation to join But you see, I've always police. thought of the
3: police as a bit like that, ever since my younger days. I mean, I was, uh, you know, when I was working in a bakery in uh, in Hampstead back in the, you know, the 70s, we used to have police officers that would pop in and have a mm. cup of tea, you know, that sort of thing. And they were, you know, they were police, and they were tough, and they were all the rest of it, but they, you could tell that there was a certain braggadocio nature of what they did and, and they were very laddish and all of that and that clearly hasn't changed since then and so while the rest of the, the world has moved on from that particular spot, it seems as though that hasn't. The thing that really surprises me though is all these police officers and former police officers who've been coming on talking about this report saying how shocked they are that this is what was going on and if they didn't know what was going on then it's no wonder they can't solve any crimes if that's their kind of instinct for finding wrongdoing, they don't mm. even see it under their own noses
6: well, that's and really, Rowley really in good particular.
3: Rowley in particular was in charge of Wayne Cousins' unit yeah. when he was last in the Metropolitan Police before he retired, and he said, "I heard him saying in his interview this morning, you know, he probably should have been better at rooting it out." Well, mm. sorry, that's not really much of an excuse, is it? Wasn't
6: that also Carrick's unit? I mean, it's yeah, a unit, it's been, they were both been, both Carrick been...
3: and Cousins came from the same unit, and the idea that that, that Rowley didn't know there was a problem there mm. beggars belief.
6: Yeah, so I, I'm I'm really concerned about the fact that he's rejecting this institutional label. I think that's exactly what the police needs to do. I mean, for myself during lockdown, my trust uh, in the police was definitely eroded by mm. the way they policed the protests, yes. the lockdown protests. Yeah. They were characterised by the police and the media as being anti-vax protests. They They really weren't. It was a a very broad church people. That was a wide collection of people, mainly protesting vaccine passports and compulsory lockdowns. The policing was brutal. It was clearly a deliberate Met Police strategy, Mm. possibly encouraged by politicians. Um, Also, I have been a victim in the past of a really, really unpleasant type of online harassment. So without going into any details, the experience I had in reporting it to the police did make me question whether I would go to the police about anything similar again. I had to push them on each step of the way. For instance, one thing I was told was, if you insist that we take action, you might find that this person steps up their efforts towards you. They tried to deter me. And... That's, that's that's not dreadful, my job to consider it? that's their job to police. yeah exactly and it's
3: their job to protect you in the end we're just watching on the screen there leroy logan is a former superintendent uh in the uh, in, in the police uh, talking on behalf of a, an organization called the alliance for police accountability let's have a quick listen Did to what he's saying against clear data that louise casey has put forward
2: and so that's a very very challenging start At least Sir Paul Condon, when he was commissioner, he accepted it. But we don't have that now. And that's why as a collaboration, we are here to make changes, to speak truth to power and not to accept the status quo and to think that this report can be just shelved. McPherson was ultimately shelved. And why? Because this government has got a totally different emphasis on how to control the commissioner, his management board and the rest of the organisation. If you don't have political will, you
3: Logan, won't get uh, the they're changes. They're speaking, I think, about you, what you were saying, that they haven't accepted so I'd, I'd this phrase, you know, institutional racism. And I heard Rowley saying that he wasn't accepting it because he felt that it was a word that had too many meanings and it was a word that not anybody understood and that they used it as a kind of political tool. Mm. But then he should have used it and said, I'd rather they use this word, but he didn't.
6: What he's effectively doing is really not... He's not accepting this report, then, yeah. if he doesn't accept that well, they're institutionally is racist saying, yeah. and sexist. You can't blame it all on bad apples. Of mm. course, there's a human tendency to want to attribute evil to individuals, yes. to scapegoat. Um, which is going to lead me on to another article I wanted to just give mention to that I wrote for The Critic yeah, last week. Do. We're not going to be able to talk about it in complete detail because it contains themes and language which wouldn't be suitable for daytime TV and radio. Yes. Yeah. It's called The Dark Side of Fantasy and mm. it's, on, it's on The Critic website at the moment. I wanted to write about this very idea that there is a danger in attributing all the evil to one person and not looking at the wider themes which affect us all culturally. So here we're saying, well, you know, that guy's a serial rapist. Mm. Yeah, sure, that that group of people shouldn't put bacon in someone's shoes right. and denying that the police are institutionally racist. Similarly, you know, you won't have failed to notice there's been a lot of attention directed at Andrew Tate mm. for the last year for being misogynist. Yes. And, at the mo- and he was banished from different social media platforms. At the moment, he's languishing in a Romanian cell, awaiting charge and then potentially trial for coercing trafficking and sexually exploiting Mm. women for his webcam business if he is guilty uh, if he's charged and guilty I hope he's severely punished but I think it's really incredible that we talk about one individual and not the whole culture which is sexualized quite misogynistic and pornographied that leads to the creation of an Andrew Tate. You know, if you have a problem with his webcam business and coercion and trafficking, I don't see how you cannot have a problem with the big webcam platforms and, frankly, Mm. all of the pornography websites. For this article and also for my new book, Free Your Mind, I did some research on online pornography websites and bear in mind they're huge Mm. they account for most of the world's web traffic okay the most um, over half of this country is using the biggest pornography website regularly right okay
3: well the two things that ever made money on the internet because you can ask anybody in the media about this and it's still the same is gambling and porn those are the two things that make money on the internet very, very hard to make money on in, in any other business.
6: Yeah. So we pick out one individual who seems quite unsavoury. He seems to have sexist attitudes. He may have engaged in illegal behaviour, which obviously would need to be punished. But he doesn't even touch the sides of what's happening on these very big money-making mm. websites. So, you know, while, for instance, um, the biggest website I'm talking about has very strict id verification for its user generated mm. content the fact is you will find multiple lawsuits against the site for having underage girls participate right. participants on the
3: site. in other words
6: but they're not participants because if they're underage we're talking about rape and sexual right. assault there are some really nasty and high yeah. profile cases that but i
3: mean the people who you're actually watching is what i mean by that
6: the people you're actually watching yeah. if they're underage mm. have been abducted and raped yeah In certain cases, there are lawsuits that allege that right now. Um, The other thing is that when you look at the content, it is really it's quite skewed towards a very particularly violent Mm. type of sexual activity. Lots of use of demeaning language and pejoratives, things that we say we don't like Andrew Tate saying that over half of the country are viewing regularly. And an awful lot of so people, this, children
3: at school as well. And a
6: lot of children. I'll, I'll give you an interesting tidbit. So you can search for all kinds of things on the pornography websites. On the leading website, when people search for video games, believe it or not, this is a thing, themed video game mm. content, the top game that people search for is Fortnite. Yes. If you know Fortnite, do know it's Fortnite. a game that is um, used by...
3: My children both were into it. They're not so much anymore. Children they were. and teenagers. Yeah.
6: Children and teenagers. Yeah. That in itself is a significant breadcrumb to indicate who's using these pornography websites yeah. because they're not, they're not age verified. So we know that young kids, teenagers and adults are watching material that has become increasingly violent, mm. degrading and doesn't reflect... What we think of as healthy sexual relationships. So it's another example where you know culturally we're really calling out one individual for bad behaviour, but we're not looking at the wider culture that has led to, in a way, his success and also his demise. I
3: I would mention one name to you, and and that is the name of Carl Walker, Manchester City in England player, who was found to have been exposing himself in a bar. In Manchester, as a story in The Sun. Um, He was called to see the police. The police, I'm not saying the police should have charged him or anything, but it appeared to be sort of in what you might regard as a fun situation, but not fun for everybody because not everybody knew him who was there. Um, But the thing that I found interesting was that he was selected to play for England by Gareth Southgate, the wokest of the woke, you know, man who thinks that that's okay. Uh, He said it's a private issue, as did Pep Guardiola, the manager of Manchester City. Somebody said to me the other day... But
6: that wasn't private. No, it, it wasn't private it was, it if was you were in a bar. It was a public It matter. was in a public place, yeah. right?
3: The police have, have, have said that the matter is now closed. It was dealt with by an out-of-court disposal, apparently. Um, and the England manager says he had spoken at length with Walker before selecting him. Somebody said to me, imagine if some footballer had come out and said, you know what, I think Sweller Braverman's um, policy to take people to Rwanda is brilliant. I bet they wouldn't have been selected.
6: You're absolutely right. So is the, there is this there is this huge double standard. But I think that's that's reflecting what people themselves are doing in So private. you can expose
3: yourself in a bar and still get selected to play football for your country. Mm. You know, are you surprised that pornography is running rampant in the in the world?
6: No. And I mean, there'll be people who are listening to this who are probably thinking, I, I'm being a prude about it. The point that no, I, I want to make is not... I mean, you probably won't find anyone who's actually genuinely much more sex positive than me. Sex is great. Mm. But, you know, read the article that's in The Critic. The point I'm making is that as a society, we're being very hypocritical about our attitudes towards sex while we're calling out individuals. Sometimes you just have to acknowledge that mm. the problem is cultural. It's not just about individuals. Yes. And that's the same problem we've got in the police at the moment. It's not bad apples, it's the institution.
3: It's the tree. Um, we've got some breaking news for you. Boris Johnson's evidence to the Privileges Committee has now been published. We'll talk to Peter Cardwell, uh, political editor, shortly. Uh, but basically, um, he's got... A statement which includes the words, I accept that the House of Commons was misled by my statements. Um, However, he does say that he didn't think he was being misleading at the time. So, I mean, that's the case open and shut, isn't it? Um, Case dismissed, I'd say. Um, Laura, very good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, We must move on because time is uh, of the essence. Laura Dodsworth, back next week. uh, Get her new book. What's it called?
6: Free Your Mind, out in June. You can pre-order now.
3: There you go. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio
2: and talk TV.
3: Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We'll bring you Swella Braverman at twelve thirty. She's going to give her a response in the Commons to uh, that report from uh, um, from the Baroness about the Metropolitan Police, which, of course, uh, Baroness Casey, uh, who has absolutely and utterly ripped the Metropolitan Police apart, calling it racist, misogynist, and homophobic—a damning verdict indeed. Uh, let's see what Swella Braverman plans to do about it. Let's talk now, though, uh, to Grania Hallahan, senior analyst at the Times Educational Supplement. There's an astonishing story that broke, sort of, late last night about a woman, a terrible story really, about a former uh, school principal, Ruth Perry, um, who uh, killed herself as a result uh, of getting a bad Ofsted rating. Um, she was in such a bad way, uh, she went from outstanding to inadequate in the school. And it really does shine a light, perhaps, on an awful lot of what the terrible pressure is uh, for some people running schools. But but it's react, the, the reaction to it has mean has meant that several uh, school principals and, and others have asked for Ofsted not to come to their schools and have actually refused to allow them to enter. Um, granted, this is an extraordinary story, isn't it?
9: It is a very extraordinary story, and it's not something we've ever seen before. And it's, it's got new uncharted territory, if mm. you like, for, for school leaders and for unions. Yeah. Yesterday, the unions were calling for Ofsted to pause the inspections. Um, the NAHT said that this is a watershed moment. He says, you know, this is causing us all to stop pause think and that we should put it on hold for at least a week while we think about you know what what needs to happen next right. similarly jeff barton another general secretary from another school leaders union says we need to have an immediate review into the impact of inspections on the well-being of school school and college leaders and staff and says we need to pause the inspection cycle mm. and then mary mouset from the neu has also for, called for call for the inspections to be temporarily halted and she she actually went as far as to say that it was insensitive for them to be carrying on at the
3: moment. Right. I mean, has Ofsted changed the way that it inspects schools somehow? I mean, it's always been done as a bit of a surprise, hasn't it? I mean, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Ofsted will say, you know, we will be doing an inspection on your school at some point, but they never actually say precisely when.
9: So you get the call and you have 24 hours notice, and if you get the call on a Friday, that means they're coming on the Monday. They won't, you know, you, you do know if it's going to be a Monday inspection yeah. prior to that. Okay. Um, so we have that and we also have the way that the gradings work and they've they've shifted slightly so we used to have unsatisfactory and that went a while ago now and we just have outstanding good requires improvement and inadequate and you know it's those two inadequate and requires improvement that really cause the most stress and would be the most intervention that a school will experience and part of this problem is that schools and had a huge gap between being inspected because there used to be a rule where if you were graded as outstanding, you didn't have to have another inspection for a while. And we've got schools with their in- officer inspections years and years out of date, and they were left on outstanding. And that kind of situation, you can imagine, causes a great deal of pressure and, and uh, you know, responsibility upon the school leaders to right. maintain the outstanding judgment. And the, the thing is, Not all schools can be outstanding. And one of these arguments that was going on even before this happened was that we need to move to a different way of judging schools, that just by having single word statements isn't enough, and that actually we should have you know you're either meeting the requirements or you're not meeting the requirements you need support and help or you're not and putting the focus on safeguarding rather than going in to inspect how teaching and learning Mm -hmm. is being done in the school because there's all kinds of arguments about the best way to teach students and often it's very you know, relative to the context of the school, of what the best strategies yeah. are to use in that school, those teachers will know those best strategies. So leave the inspection to actually checking safeguarding measures and making sure that you know the leadership safe, the children feel safe, bullying issues, those kinds of things.
3: But um, but presumably, the Ofsted uh, sort of inspectors have to work to a certain. Um, framework. They can't just kind of go in and say, "Oh, it looks all very, it looks fine here." Because interestingly enough, I'm just reading that um, the inspection report found this particular school to be good in every category, aside from leadership and management, which obviously was the thing that affected um, the leader of the school, Ruth, um, who ended up killing herself. And, and it's a tragic, awful um, result from a hot, from an Ofsted report. Um, but it's, I mean, it's it's hard for the Ofsted inspectors presumably as well because they have to use the same criteria presumably with every school, don't they?
9: Absolutely. And I think we should all also take time to think about these offset inspectors who themselves are head teachers who, you know, work tirelessly trying to, you know, support children and yeah. help that nobody wants to go into a school and find fault with it. You know, the, the whole idea of the inspection inspection is to support a school and if they have got failings to support them through it. I think the, the key point here is the fact that a lot of people are now arguing that that just isn't happening and what is happening is that um, inspections are based on data inspections are decided before they go in that you know we have inspectors who are experienced in secondary schools going to primaries and expecting inspecting primaries mm. teachers who aren't specialists in those subjects making judgments about the delivery of a subject in a sub you know that's not not their own specialism no. you know, there's plenty of arguments that although they you're quite correct they've got a criteria and they expect inspect schools judging against that criteria that actually in practice we're not getting a really even judgment of schools Mm -hmm. and that the experience of offset inspections can vary massively like i speak to school leaders about this all the time and there's a huge variation in people's experiences of an offset inspection and i think this is part of why The people are so moved now because there's been feeling for quite some time that these inspections aren't fit for purpose and actually we need to take a time to review it but as so far as refusing inspectors into your schools we do know that actually because of the education act offset has jurisdiction in england to to go into schools enter schools and grade them and that they're allowed to do that at any reasonable time it's actually a criminal offense to intentionally obstruct obstruct an offset inspection. Well, well, this is
3: interesting because what was happening last night on social media, there was a woman called Flora Cooper executive Mm. head teacher at the John Rankin School in Newbury, uh, who was sort of starting a a social media campaign, if you like. And it it started Mm. off with her saying, we're going to stop Ofsted coming to the school. Please come and show your support. Almost as though she was kind of trying to get a mob together to (laughs) stop Ofsted from getting into the school. And then it suddenly sort of got out of hand. And you could see that she was seeing that there was some press interest. And then she was suddenly going, oh, no, don't come. You know, it's probably best if you don't do that. Um, it's it's clearly a flashpoint. This have, have Ofsted said anything today officially?
9: We know that the Ofsted inspection has gone ahead, and that you know they've reiterated the points that I've just made about how the fact that the inspections are legal, and it would be illegal to block an inspection, and teachers face you know serious consequences if they were to block or boycott an inspection, not just stopping them coming to the school, but say that the inspection went ahead, but they yeah. refused to engage with the inspectors. Right. That would still count. You could face a fine. Um, you could also, you know, lose your, your right to teach mm. because it would come under breach of contract, gross misconduct, bringing the school into disrepute. Teachers have something called the teaching standards where they have specific behaviours that they must follow, and that includes upholding the rule of law. And, of course, if you were to block an offset inspection, you would contravene that. So that would, you know, then go... Put yourself at risk for a teaching ban. Whether or not that would actually happen, like the likelihood of that happening, as we said right at the start of this, we just don't know. This yeah. is uncharted territory. We've not been in this situation before. Um, but I think it's important to know that this is coming at a time where just early, just I think it was just last month, a big piece of academic research was put out that showed that the usefulness of the offset inspections aren't quite what has always been argued before you know parents want them parents like them actually that offset report isn't as helpful as we might have been led mm. to believe parents feel that you know it can be years out of date mm. as we said earlier about the point that outstanding schools weren't being reinspected. inspected there's no clear link to gcse results and i think you know we can really understand the sense behind this if you're a parent choosing a school you would trust those sources that you've always trusted friends that have got children who go Mm -hmm. to that school, what you see with your own eyes and ears when you visit that school, your experience of that school within your own local community, how useful are offset inspections? And does their usefulness warrant the extra pressure and, and the tension that it brings to schools and adding to teacher workload? Would we not actually solve a lot of the issues we have in teacher recruitment and retention? Lots of people would make this argument that you know we would solve a lot of the recruitment issues if we were to use a different offset model that didn't have these four categories and you know this sort of this fight for the mm. for the outstanding and offset banners. You know, puts a huge pressure on teachers. It you know takes time away from from planning because you're thinking what should we do to show offset you know that we are outstanding or that sort of performative paperwork, admin stuff that we pile onto teachers' jobs that do- doesn't actually. Improve educational outcomes yeah. for children in the classroom. Would we fix some things by taking some time to say, right, this model's not working. What can we do to yeah. make it better?
3: Well, we've got to run, I'm afraid, but I'll leave you this thought. Maybe what we should do is take all the people who work at Ofsted and put them back into the schools as teachers. Leave it at that. Well, a lot
9: of them, you know a lot of them are working head teachers yeah. and you know, inspectors often do lead schools themselves and they take time out to to inspect. But I think there's, you know, a, a big argument for saying more time in the classroom. And less time preparing for Ofsted is always a good thing.
3: Sure. Great to talk to you, Grania. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, That's Grania Hallahan, Senior Analyst at Times Educational Supplement, about the kind of standoff uh, between Ofsted and some school The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
0: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be.